Hello, and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. Today, we're going to continue our conversation about challenges to democracy in America by talking with Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. In early January of 2020, then-President Trump now famously encouraged Raffensperger to help overturn the election results in Georgia. Here's what Trump had to say. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have. Trump also said that, quote, there's nothing wrong with saying that, you know, that you've recalculated. Raffensperger rejected the president's claims and has consistently spoken out against conspiracy theories surrounding the election. He's now facing a primary from Congressman Jody Heiss, whom Trump has endorsed, in his 2022 re-election bid. Last week on this podcast, Representative Adam Schiff expressed his worries about American democracy and questioned what might have happened had Raffensperger not rebuffed the president's requests. Raffensperger has a new book out next month called Integrity Counts, and I wanted to know if he shares Schiff's concerns and also what he makes of the overall state of our democracy. Welcome to the podcast, Secretary. Thanks. Appreciate you inviting me. Your experience was at the center of an unprecedented attempt to overturn the results of an American presidential election. So I'm interested in hearing exactly how it played out. At what point did you realize that the president knew who you were and that you'd become a target for his efforts? Uh, Sometime, uh, probably within a week or uh, 10 days after the election, uh, he understood that he was coming up short in the state of Georgia. And he started asking, I'm sure, people. At some point, I guess he clicked uh, who the secretary of state was. I guess we go back and look at when he first called me an enemy of the state. I think that was November 13th. So obviously... Uh, He knew who I was by that point. You talk a little bit about threats in your book, threats to yourself, threats to your wife. In fact, people actually showing up at your house. What was that experience like? It wasn't pleasant. Uh, It really, uh, you start wondering how far out, how far is this really going to go? And as we saw on January 6th, it went pretty far. But, uh, you know, you just had to put your head down. It wasn't a pleasant experience, to say the least. But we were really, at the end of the day, we were working hard at getting all the data together. The allegations were just flying at us. As soon as you were trying to address one, there'd be two more that pop up on the screen. And with an office of our size, which is not that large, if you look at our budgets, 5.8 million, Fulton County's budget for elections is like 30 million. And so uh, we're trying to respond as quickly as I can, but uh, people were just throwing out stuff that made no sense. And you had to then run down the details so you could respond to it. So we were having a press conference every day. Uh, sometimes we'd have two or three just to, you know, knock down these rumors. We call it the rumor whack-a-moles. Were you or your family afraid? I think that we were uh, getting concerned. Uh, obviously, uh, we left uh, our house for a few days because they were talking about having a big rally out in front. And that was just ginned up by, you know, people in positions of power, including the president. This ultimately got to the point where you were on the phone with the former president and he essentially asked you to find 11,780 votes. What were you thinking in that moment? Well, first, I knew there were not 11,780 votes to find. Every single allegation that was made, they said that there was all these dead people that voted. There was at that time we had found two. And so you ran down every single rabbit trail, every single uh, allegation. In fact, we did a 100% hand recount of his ballot. 
And what we found is the hand recount gave us the same as the machine count. So it proved two things. One is machines did not flip the votes, which many people had alleged. And number two, it showed that he came up short. So we were just running down every single allegation. There weren't votes to find. Were you thinking in that moment, oh, shoot, I'm being asked to commit election fraud. You know, this is potentially a state felony. I really didn't think about it from that standpoint. I knew that there was pressure being put on us, implying that somehow we did something wrong. No, the thing that happened is that people actually skipped his ballot. And I've told people this. I think this, these three data points really help get people focused on what happened. 28,000 people skipped the presidential ballot. They didn't vote for Vice President Biden. They didn't vote for President Trump. And they didn't vote for Joe Jorgensen. They just skipped it. But yet they voted down ballot. And in the metro areas of Atlanta and Athens, 20,000 people voted for David Perdue, 20,000 more voted for David Perdue than voted for President Trump. In the Republican areas of all of our Republican congressmen, they got 33,000 more votes than President Trump. That's what happened. That has nothing to do with what our office does. That has to do with the state, you know, Republican Party turning out their voters and his campaign turning out the voters. And they just didn't turn out the voters. So President Trump then targeted you on Twitter, falsely saying that you were, quote, unwilling or unable to answer questions such as the ballots under the table scam, ballot destruction, out-of-state voters, dead voters, and more. He has no clue, exclamation point. Did you then release the audio to the Washington Post? I didn't release it, but it got released. And it got released, and we didn't really get into the details in that because there's an ongoing investigation right now by the Fulton County DA. It's been a theme since the 2020 election that local elections officials have been harassed by some of the former president's supporters. You were harassed. People in your office were harassed. Do you think that that has an effect on our ability to administer free and fair elections? It certainly can. We have people that have retired. And when they retired, they actually retired as an election director in a couple counties, but then they moved to other spots uh, in the county government uh, positions. Uh, they were burnt out. Um, if you look at what they really had to, first of all, overcome was COVID. And then all the issues that you had with COVID and, and keeping up the three options that we have for voting, early voting, absentee voting, and the day, election day. And I, I talked to the election directors. We have 159 counties. They said, Brad, we thought we did a great job. And then all of a sudden, this all happened, and we feel like we got beat up. And so they wore an awful lot of what we wore in our office and what I wore because they understood that they did their best and they had you know, good, fair, honest elections. But with that narrative, they got beat up. We had counties that were, had over 70% Republican voters, and some of those poll workers were actually followed home. Craziness like that. And that is the type of thing that really scares people from coming out to be volunteering to be a poll worker again. And that's really uh, dangerous because if you come out to vote and there's no poll workers, what in the world are we going to do? Those are volunteer positions. They do get paid $100 to $150 a day, but we need poll workers and they're just good, honest, decent American citizens that are working hard to make sure we can have a smooth, orderly process on election day and also during early voting. Do you worry about political violence? I think that uh, after... January 6th, I think it's a little bit like Kent State 1970. I was just a young teenager at the time. But I think that's really when people, I think it's society, that's my perspective as a young teen, but I think society said, oh, we've gone too far. I think after January 6th, I think people said, oh, we've gone too far. 
we need to dial this back. And that's why we I mean, really- have things abated on, on your end? Are people no longer threatening elections officials or administrators? We're not seeing that uh, in the book. The, the last text, uh, the sexualized text that Trisha has gotten was probably around Easter Day uh, in the name of Jesus. Yes. In the name of Jesus, someone sent her a th- threatening every day that we pray f- you know, for your, your death. And that's your wife. So that continued after January Oh, yes. Yeah, that continued uh, well after January 6th. But that's abated. But will it, you know, rear its ugly head again? I hope not. I hope that people look to their better natures and they understand that if you want to win elections, it's not just showing up at rallies. It's actually knocking on doors, doing all the ground game that you have to do. Last week, we spoke with Representative Adam Schiff on this podcast, and he mentioned you by name and said that without people like you overseeing our elections, people putting election integrity over political pressure, our democracy would be in trouble. Do you agree with him? I think it's very important that we have people in integrity. But also, I would go so far as to say our elected leadership up and down the line needs to be walking with integrity. So we have to be really mindful of what we say. You know, it's really easy to go ahead and spin people up and use that as a fundraising gimmick, to, you know, do a, a, an e-blast and then have everyone be, uh, you know, the, the $10, $20, $50, $100 donors because you've spun people up and played with their emotions. I would say don't play, yeah. with, don't play with people's emotions. Speak the truth. We can have honest discussions. I did when I was in the General Assembly. I worked with Democrats. They didn't vote for my bills sometimes, and I didn't vote for their bills. But at least we had conversations. They were respectful conversations. I think we need to get back to those values that we really we were raised with. I think that we call them small town values, but they're really universal values of, of you know, having strongly held values, but we exp- express them appropriately. I want to ask specifically because, of course, we have heard plenty from Democrats and also from some Republicans that this whole event shows us that our democracy is at risk of erosion or even ending. And so being in this position, being at the center of all of this, do you think that's the case? I think we need to sometimes look back, not to live in the past, but to look back at our great heritage. I think we need to look at when people stood in the gap. A retired judge sent me Profiles of Courage. I had never read that book before. I'm ashamed to say, but when I read it, it was just inspiring when certain senators stood up in moments of time. So Senator Norris from Nebraska, when he stood up and made some hard votes, but also Sam Houston, when he stood up and he made a hard decision. And that's inspiring that people did that. And so when people take on people like McCarthy, that happened in the 50s. And that was important that someone said something. And in the National Association of Secretary of States, our highest award we hand out annually is the Margaret Chase Smith Award for really people having that noble character that'll stand in the yeah. game, make hard decisions. And I think that's a good thing that we recognize people like that. And I think the next generation we raise up should be patriotic, but not just blind patriotism. We love our country because of our values, because of rule of law, our constitution, our declaration, and the people have stood in the gap and have said hard truths. It's great to be inspirational, and I understand kind of why you're saying that. Of course, you're, you are running for re-election right now. You are still a working politician. But in this moment, given everything that's happened over the past year, over the past five years, are you worried about American democracy? I know that 
when you have these times when we're going from one cycle to another, and we have these grand cycles that we see every 40 or 50 years, when we went through the Depression, that was a wrenching in the American society. And then we had another wrenching, you really say, after the Vietnam, which was the end of that cycle. And then out of that came Ronald Reagan. I think we're going through a wrenching right now. And the Republican Party is truly trying to fit the pieces back together again, what that looks like looking forward, being facing forward. And I think the Democrat Party will probably be doing some of that also. And so this happens in the very tumultuous times. But America is just a powerful, resilient nation because it's people. So you're not worried? I think that we'll work through it. Uh, Even though in our darkest days, America always comes through. What would have happened if Representative Jody Heiss, the Republican currently running against you in the primary for Secretary of State, whom Trump has endorsed, had been Secretary of State of Georgia at the time? Well, it's really difficult to say, but I do know that we wrote him a 10-page letter. We wrote it to other congressmen, and also we asked it to be read into the congressional record. We sent it to the, our U.S. senator, and they got that on January 6th. Perhaps they were busy that day with other affairs that happened earlier in the day. But what I did notice is that Congressman Jody Heiss, he certified his own race with those same ballots, with the same uh, machinery, everything that had happened. And yet he voted not to certify the president's race. That's a double-minded person. And he's, a, as a pastor, he should know better. And so I really question, you know, that really what he is going to do, what he would do to stand in the breach, to do the right thing. I'm just, I, I want to get a sense of, you know, maybe, obviously the name of your book is Integrity Counts, and you're talking about being a person of integrity in an important role. I'm wondering, do you think if, someone like Representative Jody Heiss, who supported and furthered conspiracies about the election, had bid in the role of Secretary of State on January 2nd when this phone call happened, he would have been inclined to go find the 11,700-some-odd votes. Well, he could have looked all he wanted, and he wouldn't have found them. What do you think would have happened? You know, say someone who is just eager to follow the former president's bidding— is in your position. What happens in that scenario? Like, to what extent are elections officials safeguarding our democracy? Well, I think in the state of Georgia, we know that there weren't the votes to find. And if someone would have done, you know, the bidding of what was being asked, and then they played uh, games, we'll call it games. At the end of the day, what would have happened is that Joe Biden would still been elected as president. There would have been an investigation. And that secretary of state right now would probably be facing, you know, uh, federal charges if they weren't actually, you know, behind bars, because that would have been a violation of the Constitution. It would have been a violation of law. There is nothing to support any of these allegations. And that's why I detail that in my book. To people understand, here's what actually happened. Here are the numbers. The President Trump came up short. And that's the, that's the bottom line facts. Do you worry about what could happen in future elections if Representative Heiss does win that primary and become the Secretary of State of Georgia? There's no doubt in my mind that he will not become the Secretary of State of Georgia. Let's just let's just play pretend for a moment. Um, I mean, do you think that would imperil democracy in Georgia in some way? Well, I think it's just a wild conjecture because I don't believe that he could ever win statewide in the state of Georgia. I know that you supported overall the election changes in Georgia this year, but those 
laws included making you no longer chair of the state election board, which is responsible for overseeing elections in Georgia. That chair is now selected by the state legislature. Does that make Georgia's elections more susceptible to meddling from the legislature? Uh, what it really does is it uh, diminishes accountability of the state election board right now or before. Well, accountability for potentially doing screwy things. I mean, what is the, exactly. like, why Exa- even well, do this? Well, and that's one thing, aspect that I do not support. Because when the Secretary of State chairs the state election board, I am held accountable by the voters. And so I understand that I report to the voters. Now the chair of the state election board actually reports to the General Assembly. So if you don't like the call, the decisions that's being made, who do you call? How do you hold a, how do you have accountability? It's so diffuse that everyone can start pointing fingers and it becomes like Washington, D.C. Oh, I didn't do that. It was this person. It was that person. There's 180 state reps that we have. We have 37 state senators. How do you hold anyone accountable? But when the state election board is chaired by the secretary of state, like it has been since the beginning of time here in Georgia, then all of a sudden you know that you have accountability and your elected officials held accountable. Did you view that as personal retribution? Oh, it, obviously, it, uh, you know what it was. It was really uh, blame shifting. People didn't know who and what had happened, and no one wanted to uh, take and take responsibility and really speak truth to everyone and say, here are the facts. President Trump did not get any votes from 28,000 voters. They skipped. 28,000 people skipped the presidential ballot. Why won't Republicans in Georgia speak that truth? Moral courage, lack of moral courage. And General Patton said that is probably one of the most most, uh, lacking aspects of humankind. I mean, that's a pretty big indictment of the Republican lawmakers in your party that they lack moral courage. I mean, does that make you question whether it's the party for you? Oh, no, it doesn't do. It's both parties. And we have to be honest about that. People don't stand up on the left side to a lot of the diatribes that they hear, you know, from their, you know, hard left. And a lot of people don't want to stand up, you know, to the hard right. I'm a capital C conservative. But sometimes you have to say to people, I think with kindness and gentleness, but you need to speak the truth. And that's why when you read, you know, Profiles and Courage, you look at, you know, Senator Norris, when he went back home to Nebraska, he says, I can't, I've come home to tell you the truth. And they wanted to tar and feather that man. But after he spoke to them for a couple hours, and they realized what had happened. They all went away, and they were satisfied with the answer. Now, the newspaper wasn't, but the, but the newspaper lived in their own little bubble. The people, they understood that Norris did the right thing. I mean, there's got to be some difference, I guess you see, in terms of defending someone who's literally trying to overturn an American election, you know, versus whatever diatribe on the left you may see. I don't there hasn't been a Democratic president who's tried to overturn an, an election by pressuring you to find votes, talking to state legislatures about sending a different slate of electors to the Electoral College, uh, about not certifying votes on a local level in Michigan. I mean, if that's what's at stake here, if, if one party views that as OK and defensible, how do you relate to that party as a Republican yourself? Well, 
I talk to a lot of people. I talk to a lot of Republicans. And we have a whole bunch of sub-segments of what people call them. We have our pro-life Republicans. We have our Second Amendment Republicans. We have our, uh, going back to Goldwater Republicans, Republic, uh, Reagan Republicans, Bush Republicans. we got a big tent. We have a lot of different groups. Mm-hmm. But I mean, well, 60% of Republicans today believe that the election was stolen in 2020, though. So this is the majority of Republicans. And that's why I wrote my book. There's the facts. You may not like the facts, but those are the facts. You know, there was a movie that says, truth, you can't handle the truth. Well, I'm putting the truth out there. These are the truths. They're fact-based. And if anyone wants to take a point uh, and really, you know, drill through and say, Brad's wrong about this. Oh, there weren't just two people. There was, you know, four. Well, okay, we'll talk about that. But you'll never find that there were enough votes to overturn the election. How do you win over that majority of your party, which you're going to have to do in order to remain the Secretary of State of Georgia. You're up for election in 2022. Because I know that Republicans, the vast majority of them are great, wonderful people. I know that the vast majority of Americans are Well, but how do you convince them? It's not a question of good person or bad person. It's just how do you convince them that they're wrong about the 2020 election? Well, you, you put that out in writing. There's my book, Integrity Counts. And people can slice it and dice it and look at it and read it. I'm not really running to sell books. I'm just running out there. But my book is to set the record straight. And that's what I've done. If someone like you can't win a Republican primary in Georgia, where do you go next? Or what does that say about the party? I'm not worried about Brad. Uh, I've been in business a long, long time, and I still got my runways long enough that uh, I can go back and work with my son if he'll let me, because he now runs the day-to-day operation. Well, what about the Republican Party? Republican Party will, will uh, you know, work through this situation like it has in the past. You know, we had a, disaster, a disastrous election loss in 1964, and then all of a sudden uh, we had Nixon, you know, arose in you know, 68, and then we had Watergate. We thought the Republican Party was going to be in the wilderness for a long period of time, and up popped Ronald Reagan in 1980. So don't count us out. What we really need to do is lean back into eternal, long-standing good values of hard work, thrift, uh, getting a job, having opportunity, freedom, hope, family, you know, aspirational goals, because the American people are aspirational people. People that came to America and look at the coming over here even illegally now, which I don't support, obviously, but people have been coming to this country for 300 years for a better life, and they're going to continue to come because it's a great country. And so you have to tap into people's hopes and dreams in an honest way, and when we do that, we'll be successful. You are somewhat of a rare breed in the sense that a lot of Trump-critical Republicans have left electoral politics. People like Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney are in the same boat as you. Do you commiserate with each other? Do you talk about other, you know, Republicans who are Trump critical, who are remaining in, you know, elected office and trying to still win elections within the Republican Party? Well, I, I've always been a fond believer of Vince Lombardi and also Teddy Roosevelt. They have great slogans. But it's really about, you know, getting out there in the field of battle and just continue and persevere and be persistent and consistent. And that's really my nature. You don't survive in business uh, like I have for the long period of time that I've been in business, unless you're a survivor. And so sometimes you go through some tough periods. This is a tough period right now for the Republican Party, but we're going to come out on the other side stronger and better than before. 
do you talk about how to win in this environment with other Republicans who are trying to do it? You must acknowledge the difficulties of running as a Trump-critical Republican in Georgia. Well, I don't call myself Trump-critical. I'm just speaking the facts. You've been, criti- you've been it- so critical of Trump. I just speak in the facts. Unfortunately, because my facts don't line up with his allegations, people think I'm criticizing. What I'm saying, here are the facts. I'm sorry that people think it's critical. I've been very respectful to the former president. I want to talk a little bit more about Georgia's new election law before I let you go. So, Fair uh, enough. Georgia conducted both an audit and a recount. By all accounts, the 2020 election was a secure election. You say in your book, in fact, that our elections are both fairer and more secure than they have been at any point in our history. Why did Republican lawmakers change the state's election law if they worked so well and you defended them as safe and secure? Well, my my feeling is the best thing about SB202, obviously, is moving away from signature match and moving to driver's license number and your birthday, day, month, year. They've been using that in Minnesota for over 10 years now, a Democrat state. Texas has copied us, and now it's going to be doing the same thing. People need to understand we've been sued by both the Republican Party and the Democrat Party over the subjective nature of signature match. So I think this was a good thing, and that's what I told the General Assembly we needed to do, and I ran on that in 2018. No one wanted to listen to me for three years until we had what happened last year when everyone questioned about signature match. We kept signature match uh, in place. We did signature match. The counties did. But we can take that off the table and now we move to something that is actually objective. That's a good thing. We've also did other measures like keeping lines shorter than an hour. We're making counties accountable. And I do think that it's good that we have an accountability measure that if a county continues to fail, like Fulton County has since 1993, 1993, that's 25 years, that you can then do a review panel. So it's a thoughtful, thorough process that's a bipartisan review panel. And then you can come back with recommendations to the state election board that says, the board needs to be replaced because they're not doing their job of oversight. You put in a new board, and then once they're uh, selected, they'll hire a new election director. And then if they get it right, great. If they don't, you can come back and do it again until they get it right. They did something similar to that in Florida, and they fixed their two problem counties. What you're describing is a process by which partisans can interfere in the election. I mean, you talked about personal retribution against you from the state legislature, disempowering you from being the chair of the board of elections in the state. You know, the state legislature can now replace you. They choose who gets to chair the state board of elections. That chair can also then go and replace local elections officials. Doesn't that process make it as you said, one, less accountable to the people, but two, give more opportunity to partisan actors who you already said, you know, don't have moral courage to meddle in America's elections. Well, what it really does, though, it has accountability. Already what Fulton County has gotten the message. Now that there, there's this review panel, uh, the board is uh, really figuring out what do they need to do to fix the issue. So they're looking at bringing in stronger support staff. Uh, they're looking at what do they need to do for election uh, logistics? What do they need to make sure that they have chain of custody? They have a lot of issues that they need to work on. So they've gotten the So message. for now, you're saying it puts pressure on people to do the right thing. Do you foresee any local elections officials being suspended through this procedure? Well, it's really the, the uh, they, it's not the county election director that can be fired by the state election board. It's actually the board itself that could be replaced. Then they would do the hiring of the county election director. What actually happened in Fulton County post-election 
is that the county election board voted to fire the county election director, Rick Barron. And that, was, that happened because one Democrat joined the two Republicans. What's really sad is that that Democrat that took that brave and bold step, she was not replaced afterwards by the county commission. The county commissioner then got political and said, you don't have the right to fire them. We've hired him because he's a county employee, and we can say when we'll fire him. And we're keeping them back in the job, so we're reinstating them. And that's when it really got political. Do you worry at all about partisanship playing a role in how elections are administered now based on some of these changes? Uh, partisanship has already always been in elections. Uh, it's just that in this heightened time of polarity that we have, you're really seeing it. But the secretary of states have been Republican or they've been Democrat generally. And when the, you, they're appointed, they're usually appointed by a governor and he may be a Democrat, and he could be a Republican. And so that, quote, Secretary of State that's appointed will probably lean according to his party's or her party's affiliation. And so that's, you're never going to get partisanship out of politics. But we want to make sure that it's not to the point where people are wearing that on their sleeve. At the county level, what I see is just like the police walk what we call the thin blue line, where your county election directors are walking that that line, unfortunately, it's not a thin line for them. It's the line of integrity, where they're balancing accessibility with security. What are the laws? What are the rules? What does the Constitution say? That's the line they walk. And when they continue to walk that line of integrity, that's why elections work at the county level. When they work at the county level, they'll work at the state level because they report the information to the state. Some of the provisions in the new election law may make it harder to vote. So, for example, you can't vote provisional ballots if you go to the incorrect precinct now. Early voting for runoffs is much shorter. Drop boxes will be reduced from 111 to 23 in the foremost populous counties and closed three days before Election Day. Where is the threshold at which point making it harder, even if only marginally, becomes unacceptable? Well, let's unpack the first one about the provisional ballots. What you really want is you want voters to vote in their precinct. When they show up out of precinct and you give them a provisional ballot, what in effect they've done is they disenfranchise themselves of all the other races that they can't vote. So you you show up in the wrong precinct, your state rep, your state senator seats, your county commission uh, for that zone may not count, but the top of the ticket will count. So that's good for anyone that's running statewide. That's good for those races, but it's very important that people then vote in their precinct. And what was happening is that people were using it as a get-up-the-vote strategy, and then people would show up at a precinct and flood that zone, and all of a sudden, the county's not ready, and you wonder why there's a long line. Well, because some of these people, these 20 people in this line, shouldn't even be in this precinct. They should be someplace else. But what Georgia did do is they moderated that bill so that after 5 p.m., you can vote out of precinct. But if you show up at 10 o'clock in the morning, your county uh, precinct workers are going to say, this is your precinct. You need to go there across town, or this is where it is. It's two blocks over to the other precinct. And that way, all of your races will count. So that's really a very wise uh, aspect that's been done. It's been upheld by the Supreme Court in the Bronovich ruling. Uh, Your next question uh, concerned uh, absentee ballot drop boxes. And last year, for the very first time, we put in absentee ballot drop boxes as an emergency measure People were concerned about the reliability of the post office, and then people wanted to make sure that people get their absentee ballots back. And so they started that. We had them under 24-7 surveillance. 
what the General Assembly said, we'd like to have one absentee ballot drop box at the very least in every county. Last year, we had 35 counties that didn't have a single absentee ballot drop box. So now all counties have to have one, so it's uniform. And then there's one drop box per every 100,000 people. In some sense, it sounds like there are trade-offs in terms of the way that election and voter laws get written. When this conversation began in Georgia, for example, Republicans had proposed doing away with mail voting for no-excuse absentee voting. They also were thinking of banning voting on Sundays, which is, of course, a lot of the Souls to the Polls programs function on Sundays because that's when people go to church. And that specifically applies to Black Georgians in particular. So do you understand why Democrats had such a a negative response to this bill out of the gate when provisions like that were included? And as it went through the process and calmer heads prevailed, thoughtful people spoke into that, what you saw. And they also had a multitude of committee hearings so that everyone could be heard, including Democrats. And all that stuff that you just mentioned was stripped from the bill and what came out. But where were they even going with that? Well, I think in some cases uh, they were really um, filing bills just to placate angry people. But at the end of the day, it never saw the time of day because people realized that we're not going to go ahead and actually, you know, do some of the measures that were proposed. Do you think that would have disenfranchised people? Well, we ended up with more additional days of early voting. We kept Sunday voting uh, available for any county that wants to keep Sunday voting. So now all 159 counties have to have 17 days of early voting. And any county can have Sunday voting that would like to you know, have that. So that's actually made it more what accessible. What was going on there? I mean, are there people in the Republican Party in the state legislature who did set out to try to make it harder for Democrats to vote at the start? There were a lot of thoughtful, solid, serious legislators that their voices were brought to bear. And what came through at the end of the day was solid piece of legislation. And a lot of that other stuff, that chaff was separated from the solid wheat that was proposed. Is that stuff that you would speak out against if it were ever proposed again? It died on the floor. I don't think we'll be seeing it again because the people, I think uh, a lot of that was uh, response. Uh, a lot of that was you know, post-election and people were still on uh, that belief that President Trump somehow you know, won the state of Georgia, that something happened. But I think as more information comes out, people really want to be thoughtful and people want to have intellectual honesty. Now, to have intellectual honesty, the first step of that will be intellectual curiosity. So you really have to dig into the facts. You can't just listen to your own set of facts. You really have to look into a lot of different opinions. And that's why I laid out my my book. It's fact-based. I footnote everything where I've got my sources from so you can check it out, kick the tires. I'm ready for the scrutiny. But I say all that so that you understand that at that time, emotions were very high. Now people are starting to come to the realization that President Trump didn't carry the state of Georgia. And so what we're seeing right now is I think some people have seen that it's a very uh, attractive financial proposition when you talk about voter fraud. And just like Stacey Abrams talked about, voter suppression has been very profitable for her also. But neither one are supported on the facts. We have very safe, secure elections here in the state of Georgia. It's never been easier to vote, but it is hard to cheat. And that's a good thing. You brought up Stacey Abrams not conceding in her quote-unquote concession speech, ultimately. Do you think there's really 
any comparison between what happened in 2018 with what happened in 2020. And, that, and that's understanding that in your book, you wrote, quote, Trump's attacks on our electoral system were louder and more destructive by orders of magnitude than anything that had preceded it. Exactly. He has 80, 80 million Twitter followers. She doesn't have 80 million tw Twitter followers. But she should be held to the same standard for one very good reason, if, no, if for no other reason. She said she wants to be president. She's written about that in her book. She's not been bashful about that at all. So if she wants to be president, then she needs to walk that line of integrity. And that's what people are looking for. They're looking for good, honest, decent people. No matter what party uh, nominates you know, their people for president or for any law office, from county commissioner all the way up to governor, all the way up to president, you're looking for people of integrity. From what I understand, part of Stacey Abrams' argument in 2018, and of course, she lost by 55,000 votes. There has been no evidence brought into court or provided otherwise that there were 55,000 people who were supporters of Stacey Abrams who were prevented from voting because of voter roll purges or exact match legislation, et cetera. Stacey Abrams lost the 2018 election. From what she I understand, did. Stacey Abrams' speech and her efforts had to do in large part with voting laws generally in the state of Georgia and wanting to change policy to make it easier for people to vote. From what I understand about the 2020 election and reading you know, your book, I have it right here, uh, is good, that good Donald Trump actually tried to overturn the election after the fact that it wasn't really quibbling with policies about how easy or hard it is to vote. It was just trying to overturn an American election. Would you disagree with what I said? Well, what I'd say, uh, to, just a point of clarification, uh, she came up with the term voter suppression. We, we got them in deposition on one of her many court cases where she was expending state dollars as we defended ourselves, and we did meet her and beat her in courts of law. But she had poll tested a word called voter suppression. They found that this was a great way of getting out the vote. And so it wasn't based on the truth, but it was a way of energizing her base. And so politicians do that on both sides, and they really need to find something that's really a positive reason to be supporting you, something that's aspirational, forward-facing. And when we find these politicians, the next crop that come up that are forward-facing with a positive, aspirational message, to have something that voters can really buy into because it resonates with them, because someone's really dealing with their issues that they're facing today. Not 20 years ago, not 40 years or 100 years ago, but actually living in the present, looking in the future, then those politicians are going to do very well, and they will be elected, and they'll make America stronger, more successful for everyone. There is, of course, data out of Georgia showing that it can be harder for people of color to vote in the state. For example, an analysis of data from Georgia Public Broadcasting and ProPublica found that the average wait time after 7 p.m. across Georgia was 51 minutes in polling places that were 90% or more non-white, but only six minutes in polling places that were 90% white. And so I think people who talk about voting laws in Georgia and how in Georgia it may be harder for people of color to vote are pointing to specific data. Well, you, to that point, wondering, those are actually counties that are run by Democrats with Democrat county election directors. Fulton County being example number one. Pick another county, Clayton County. Pick DeKalb County. Or how about Chatham County? So another point, I don't want to go down that road, but if they're run by Democrats and they not run well, then it's really Democrats disenfranchising, holding up those whole lines. Now, is that a conscious effort on their part to really then use that as a talking point? Or are they just incompetent? But in Fulton County, it needs to be fixed. 
Chatham County has a new election director, so they've made great progress already. They understood something needed to change. They have a new election director. Floyd County had some issues last fall. They made some changes with a new election director. Those are all positive developments, except here in Fulton County, we're still talking about the same thing like we have been since 1993. What do you think is the number one thing Georgia can do right now uh, to ensure election integrity going into the future? I think that we've really addressed an awful lot of it. I think more voter education. I also, uh, we strongly encourage uh, SB202 uh, has a training requirement for uh, the monitors that the political parties and outside observers will have. We want them to go through poll worker training. We'll make that available for them. But it's very important that they understand the process because if you don't understand the process, you're thinking, what are they doing there? And you're questioning everything because you're not coming at that from a, from a point of trust. But once you understand what the poll worker is doing, that's a good thing. But anyone that watches and listening to us talk today, what I would encourage you to do is volunteer to be a poll worker. We had someone on staff, uh, and he ended up volunteering in Cobb County to be a poll worker, ended up being a precinct captain. Uh, and so he ran that precinct as he volunteered his wife and his daughter, but all of them learned the process. And they really just made them even more effective in my office, but also they're really understanding all the nits and the grits, all those ticking and tying, all those details that they do. And when you know, understand that, you understand, oh, we check, check, and double check. And so that's a good thing. We actually have safe and secure elections. Yes, we do. Now, we do have some election mismanagement, and I've talked about Fulton County. I've been beating that issue to death. But we, by and large, your counties are really well run. And that's what happens really across America because it's a lot of fail-safes that they have in place. All right. Well, let's leave it there. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Brad Raffensperger is the Georgia Secretary of State. His new book is called Integrity Counts. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And Nash Consing is on video editing. Emma Riley is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.